0: This past week, we were treated to almost, actually no, over four hours of Stranger Things stuff that was mostly good, but not perfect. And let's just say that there are some things that Stranger Things and Disney Plus's Kenobi series could learn from each other. Hello and welcome to episode 67 of Nerdsplosion. I'm your host, John Winthrop. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Sean Park. How are you doing today, Sean? Doing well. We, this last
1: couple of weeks of television has been absolutely insane with Kenobi and Stranger Things, two of the most anticipated things ever. And on top of that, uh, still need to watch The Boys Season 3. So the, it's, television has been quite insane lately, and I'm excited to talk about two very
0: historic TV seasons. Yeah, of course, we are once again joined by Mr. Michael Manny, the CWDC hater himself. How are you doing today, Michael? Uh,
2: I'm not a I'm not a CW hater. I am a I am a Warner Brothers hater. Uh, but I'm doing I'm doing very good. Uh, still recovering from Stranger Things and uh, Kenobi, which both very much i very much enjoyed very much loved and yes still uh still very much so angry at todd helbig so todd if
0: you're listening to this uh why why have you done this to me yeah but we're still on the we're new legends of tomorrow train even as it gets less and less plausible every every week why is it in a different universe todd why is superman and lois in a different universe Well, that's a discussion for another day. After I've seen more of Superman: and The Lois, <laughs> but but no, we had we had Stranger Things, but we're going to talk about that a little later. We're going to start this week's discussion with Kenobi, which we have mostly good things to say about. Um, I before getting into the discussion, I think Kenobi is the richest writing-wise and story-wise and even character-wise of anything that we've gotten in Star Wars since The Last Jedi back in 2017. And a lot of that has to do with this show kind of piggybacking off of a lot of the ideas that we had in George Lucas's original trilogy that Ryan Johnson then um, continued with The Last Jedi. It was it's very queer that the writers as well as yeah, the Siege of Mandalore is good, but that's the Clone Wars, Sean. The Clone Wars has always been good. And we've known about the Siege of Mandalore since, gosh, I want to say 2014, I think, was when Dave Filoni first started
1: You talking said the, ri- the richest writing and content. I'm, Siege of Mandalore was two years I after I mean, Siege Life of Mandalore
0: is really good. It's just that I'm thinking live-action Star Wars, I guess. Clone okay. Wars has never,
2: the, also Clone Wars has never been, Clone Wars has always been masterful.
0: Yeah, for the most part, yeah. There's definitely a couple arcs in the earlier seasons that are just alright, but they were still trying to find their footing, and the animation budget wasn't all there, and they hadn't been working on the show that long. It's, it's kind of how you look at most shows, like when you go back and look at the original Star Trek, or, um, or what, like
2: season one of Rebels.
0: Yeah, or even, yeah, especially the first season of Rebels because uh, they were shifting to a new art style and there were a lot of animators at Disney that had never done um, 3D for a television series before. As well as adjusting to the way that Lucasfilm operated on the animated shows. Because I think that they kept up the same animation practices for Rebels that they used for Clone Wars. But I'm not certain on that. Um, but no, Kenobi is, what first was going to be a movie right we're going to get either a movie or a trilogy of movies and then solo happens and disney got um cold feet and we're scared of it failing like solo did because they're dumb um and then the mandalorian took off so it became a limited series on disney plus and i think as much as i love the show i think the a good chunk of its issues come from the decision to have it go from Um, being a movie to a show, because it limited the budget, so they had to work with a lot less, which oftentimes made a lot of the practical camera work not as great, Um, but where the show really shines is the writing, as I mentioned before, Um, particularly the dynamic between Anakin or Darth Vader and Obi-Wan, which I'm sure that Michael and Sean want to talk a little more about.
1: Yes. Um, What I really wanted in this show was I just wanted to see uh, how the two of them would interact. And I wanted to see flashbacks. Mm -hmm. And, dear God, in episode five, I got exactly what I wanted. Uh, In in episode five, we got flashbacks with uh, Hayden and uh you and mcgregor as jedis it was right after
0: attack of the clones and it went away before attack of the clones someone pointed out that anakin doesn't have his robot arm yet so it's before attack of the clones oh that that's my be- but no you're okay, fine so right before, yeah right before attack
1: of the clones but the fact that we got um f- the flashbacks with the two of them interacting and then it perfectly uh, correlated with the present Mm-hmm. was everything I could have asked for and more. Episode five is the, is the height of the show, in my opinion, mm-hmm. because of that. Yeah, it is
0: so good.
1: Yeah, let's it, talk everywhere. about
0: the way that they um, established Anakin and Vader's d- dynamic in the show, because this is coming off of Revenge of the Sith. Uh, before the show begins, the last time that Anakin and Obi-Wan saw each other was Obi-Wan leaving him for dead on Mustafar. Um, with Obi-Wan telling him that he loved him in past tense, as in he can't love the person that Anakin has become. And Obi-Wan gets these nightmares where we see him blaming himself for what happened to Anakin, thinking that he could have done more um, to stop Anakin from becoming Vader, right? And then this is further shown off in the third episode during the fight between... And Obi Wan, where Obi Wan clearly does not want the fight. Vader is creating this whole situation, to wear Obi Wan out, to create a confrontation, to antagonize him and destroy um, everything that Obi Wan holds dear and everything um, that he tethers himself to the world with. By constantly, de- and you can see that in this fight by him destroying all confidence or all um, power that Obi Wan had and the of that is is built from the fear and regret that obi-wan feels because he know he thinks that he created the monster that his best friend has become and he's constantly running away throughout that whole fight and the next couple episodes after that are then built up with him try have, being forced to face his fears and become stronger and you can see how far he's come just within the span of a couple episodes in episode five when he when Obi-Wan has that moment he has a very Luke Skywalker last Jedi-esque moment where he buys everyone else time to escape and he comes out with no weapons at all the face down Reva and the talk her down and use her as a weapon against Vader as a mutual enemy and I absolutely love that moment. I especially love the moment where he gives away his lightsaber. And I don't remember what the rebel's name is, but um, the, the male rebel leader says to him, how are you going to fight with, without your weapon? And he says, there's other ways to fight. And I love, I love that line. And it's a perfect encapsulation of Obi-Wan kind of rediscovering what the Jedi Order means to him and how he can still use that in his life even though the Order is no more. That he can still be a Jedi and be hopeful and be a, a force for good despite all the all the bad that he blames himself for.
2: I know what I wanted to see most from the show is just the state that Obi-Wan was in you know, ten years after *Avengers: The Sith*, and so this this show, whether it was just this project, whether it was going to be a movie, whether it was going to be a show, whether it was going to be a trilogy of movies, we've got. I, I think it was around 2016 is when I remember that I at first hearing that it could be a movie, and there I remember I don't remember his name, and I remember there was a director attached to it, and this was everything I ever wanted as. A kid that grew up with the prequels and i consider the prequels my star wars more than any other area era of star wars because that's the that's the star wars i was introduced to first that's the star wars that i grew up with so this project was every was my most anticipated pretty much anything in terms of movies, TV shows, whatever form it was going to take, just seeing you and McGregor again and then seeing Hayden Christensen again was the cherry on top of the milkshake. So it was everything I really ever wanted. What I wanted to see is just how the two, I to how the two were coping, because interestingly is that in some media, Vader and Anakin are treated like two different people. Vader it really treats depends
0: him, on who's right. Yeah, him, yeah. Vader like, treats
2: himself like Vader treats himself like Anakin and Vader are two different people. Mm-hmm. Palpatine does the same thing, and but this show really bridges, I think, bridges the gap excellently and shows that really it is it is the same person, even though it just from the outside looking in looks otherwise. In Episode six, that final confrontation from them probably the it's probably my favorite lightsaber duel since with the exception of the ahsoka and maul fight Mm. in siege of mandalore is my favorite lightsaber duel i've seen since duel of fates Mm. it's just excellent and the helmet the helmet breaking just like it is in rebels i'm a huge rebels fan twilight the apprentice broke me and continues to break me every time i see it Yes. And just that par- that parallel of, in that show, Ahsoka breaks the one side of Vader's mask, and you hear James Earl Jones interspersed with Matt Lanter. And then in this instance, you see James Earl Jones' voice interspersed with Hayden Christensen's voice.
0: And, yeah, and you get the, the physical performance from Hayden there as well. Yeah. And, and it's even been pointed out, it's not just a parallel. This was fully people think that it was fully intentional. There hasn't been confirmation from the writers, but it's the opposite side of the Vader mask that was broken in Kenobi from the one in Twiway of the Apprentice. And the running idea that I've seen a lot of people talk about on on Twitter, and I I think that MC and Alex Kane talked about it on What the Force, was that Obi-Wan and Ahsoka are both able to break off half the mask and reveal a little bit of Anakin peeking through Vader but Luke was the only one to be able to break through all the way. Obi-Wan and Ahsoka were able to get Anakin to come out um, and be more than the monster that he created, but they weren't able to redeem him fully. They weren't able to um, bring Anakin fully back, and it's not until the mask completely comes off when Vader allows Luke to take it off, not when it's damaged or when it's forced off by someone else, but when he volunteers to take the helmet off is when he is fully human again my
2: not just the monster my headcanon on that is that obi-wan and ahsoka both couldn't see past the monster that anakin had become that Mm -hmm. just from their past experiences within their past you know love for him as anakin that they couldn't see past the monster that he was they were shocked I don't think disgust is the right word. They were shocked. They couldn't see past it. But Luke, having not known his father as Anakin, he was the only one that was yeah, like you said, that was only, that was able to actually break through to Anakin and see past the monster that he had become as Vader. So that, for me, masterful. I remember thinking before or this show came out when Kathleen Kennedy first teased and Ewan and Hayden first teased that there was going to be a Vader. And Obi-Wan confrontation and I was and I remember I was thinking well how are they going to do that doesn't does that lessen the impact of A New Hope but yeah really I was worried about that too I think it only improves A New Hope now I think
0: it makes A New Hope better absolutely I think that the show's writing does a really good job of recontextualizing so many of the lines from the original film in ways that Revenge of the Sith was kind of a little vague on or it didn't always perfectly match up. Because I don't think George was really thinking about having the writing or like met or message through lines with characters' dialogue matching up with the original Star Wars. I don't think he was thinking about that at all. And that's not a bad thing. I think that he was more focused on the story that he was telling in the moment rather than how well it would connect. While the writers for Kenobi were really hard focused on how can we write a story with Vader and Obi-Wan that captures how they are in between Revenge of the Sith and the original Star Wars without contradicting the way either of those movies present them.
2: Yeah, and I love that it shows to, even to that point, Vader was, Vader was, or Anakin was Anakin for, I believe, 19 years, and he was Vader for 20 years. Because yeah. Vader died when he was 42? 22-ish. I think
0: it was, it was like 22, 23 years. Something like that. I don't yeah. remember how big the time skips are in the original trilogy movies off the top of my head. It's,
2: I remember it's A New Hope and Empire are three years apart and yeah. Empire and Return of the Jedi are a year apart. But I love that it shows just from every step of his journey as Vader, Anakin was never gone completely. Just the conflict... Within him and the inability to let the past go. Yeah, I guess absolutely. Kind of like Kylo. I'm, it just makes me think of Kyla Ren's line, the "Let the past die" line. It just shows that Anakin's just bloodlust for for Obi Wan. I mean, you see it in the final episode where the Grand Inquisitor is like, which I can get to that later. I think it's phenomenal that we got to see the Grand Inquisitor and just Inquisitors in general in live action because I'm a huge Rebels fan, uh, but. I think it just shows the conflict in him at every stage of his journey as Vader. We've seen it. uh, We saw it, I think in Revenge of the Sith. We've seen it in other media. We've seen it, of course, Return of the Jedi. We've seen it in comics. I think there's been visions where like where he, where he sees Padme's ghost. He goes and visits his tomb. I'm not completely familiar with the comics. I'd like to read all of them someday, but it does an excellent job just showing Vader's conflict within himself. And like I said, just bridging the gap and showing, reminding us that Vader and Anakin are one person. They're one in the same. It's just two, it's, it's two halves of the whole, I guess it'd be a simple way of putting it almost.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the best example that comes in episode five with the flashback that Sean met, mentioned, where you see Anakin, Obi-Wan when they were still friends, when, they still had that, that sort of um, teacher and student relationship, but they're very clearly treated as friends in their duel, as, as equal parts, as if this is a, a friendly fight. And the duel in its entirety is meant to be a teaching moment for Anakin on how to accept loss and how to accept failure and um, to not always be desiring victory over his opponent. A lesson... That is very clearly something that Vader in the present, in Kenobi's present, still struggles with. With him constantly wanting to not just defeat Kenobi, but to um, completely destroy him and everything that he believes in, as I mentioned earlier. He, Vader likes to dominate his opponents. He wants to feel physically impressive. He wants to make them feel a sense of uselessness when they're up against him as if there's no chance that they could have won no matter what they had done. And you can see this in this fight with Riva in the fifth episode as well. And this is the same type of strategy that he uses with Obi-Wan in episodes three and six. And you can see that facade of domination start to crumble when he realizes that Obi-Wan has regained his strength. And especially when he breaks open the mask and the yell that Hayden has as Vader, when Obi Wan leads him at, in Episode Six, shows just how defeated he is because he couldn't get that victory that he so desired.
2: That scene is, to me, one. I would say I'm not like I'm not exaggerating when I say I think that's one of the best Star Wars scenes ever, and one of my favorite ever. Just. The Hayden's voice interspersed with James Earl Jones' voice. The, I am the I am not your failure, Obi One. Or, uh, you didn't kill Anakin Skywalker. I did. Mm-hmm. I I think it was, just showing Obi One's grief throughout the entire show, and then up to that point, you and find you and uh, finally as Obi One finally being able to forgive himself and show that it's not my fault. This was not. I didn't do this, and he able and able to let and able to let Anakin go and accept that his friend is gone and there's nothing he can do about that. It was just a phenomenal showing of his peer character growth just from episode one, episode six. His episode one, he was just an absolute broken man. There was, was the most just broken, depressed, pt the PTSD nightmares he would get of Mustafar. I think it was just excellent showing that. Obi-Wan was a- able to forgive himself. And I think, I like to think that that was Anakin peeking through just for a split second to just sit to communicate to Obi-Wan that this is, that you, that you can forgive yourself, Obi-Wan. This is not your fault. I made this decision. I did this to myself. And then Vader comes back out. And I, th- and I want to say, I've seen screenshots of it, that when he says that, there's a blue light. Yeah. And this bouncing off is normal. Yeah. yeah. So like and it's then Anakin then when breaking through. And he says
0: through. that. Um, that I killed Anakin Skywalker, that I, I created this essentially. You can see his eye turn that dark side yellow, that we saw in Revenge of the Sith, with the red light hitting his helmet. Super mm-hmm. cool.
2: Yeah.
0: But and and you mentioned about um how, oh my Vader says like I I killed. Anakin Skywalker, and that kind of leans into that idea that, that what Obi-Wan says in the original Star Wars, that he that Darth Vader um, killed Luke's father, that he killed Anakin Skywalker. And in that moment, I think Obi-Wan fully believes that. Like he's saying that that is what he believes. It is a figurative way of speaking, but it's not just meant to be comfort for Luke, so that he doesn't know what actually happened to his father. It's what Obi-Wan truly believes, because that's what Anakin told him. And, and you,
1: sorry, go ahead, Sean. One one thing, I, one thing I want to add to is you during the fight itself. While we can talk about how you know the visuals weren't the greatest, I understand that, but during the fight itself, you saw Obi Wan says throughout the show, "I'm not who I used to be." <laughs> well, that that kind of uh, that that kind of changed when Obi Wan grew, where he said, "I will do what I must." At the start of it, the Revenge of the Sith, Obi Wan is finally coming out again, and as someone who probably will, and yes, my Michael just said in the chat, uh, the stance. Uh, yeah, Obi Wan's fighting stance with, with, that we've
0: seen yeah with yeah. every appearance with,
1: with the stance and said, uh, "I will do what I must." Like. It shows that, like, yes, he has fully realized. Like, you know what? I am, I am the Jedi Master. Yes, the last ten years have been rough, but I have a job to do. I am still a Jedi heart, and seeing that was so. As someone who myself champions Revenge of Sith more than almost any person on the planet, uh, it's it was so sad fa- satisfying to see because the start of the show he was a broken man. He couldn't fight. He was weak. He was uh, t- uh, weighed down by. By the guilt of his sins, which is why he didn't help that Jedi in the first episode. But being able to see that, it it goes to show not only that Obi Wan's return, but uh, Vader, like did this. What this was a chance for Vader to really. Obviously, we know what happens later. But in the but just speaking at it without the hindsight, that was Vader's chance. Uh, Obi Wan had been rusty for ten years. That was also a chance for Vader to really complete his mission, but Obi Wan mm-hmm. is the one that trained him. He knows that
0: victory. Yeah, to Feel that victory. Yeah, that yes, feel that victory. But
1: Obi Wan was was his master all along, and even in A New Hope, Obi Wan still wins in a way. Like mm-hmm. Vader, no, absolutely. It's- Vader never beat him ever, and that's and seeing Revenge said Obi Wan come out for this to uphold that and with the writing make the the original movie that much better like it's everything it, it's it's that was the number one goal for the show when it fulfilled it yes you can you can spend 20 minutes ripping the vi- the the visuals whatever and that's fine but it accomplished the goal it needed to and that's yeah. what i'm happy about yeah no the writing
0: again like all of the show's strengths are its writing and its cast um, and you mentioned the, that through line of sacrifice of Obi-Wan sacrificing himself to save Luke and Leia um, in the original Star Wars. And I think one of the best things we got in this show was Obi-Wan and his, uh, and his sort of mentorship of Leia throughout the show, like his, his reluctant um, teaching of Leia as he's forced to take care of this child that he that he thought he could only cause harm to before, right? That he thinks that he's no longer good enough to be a mentor figure for anyone, let alone one of Anakin's children. And you can see both Padme and Anakin in, um, in young Leia in the show, and um, you can see how Obi-Wan has, and Leia have affected each other over the course of the show. I mean, you see that scene in episode six where... Obi-Wan is so close to getting defeated by Vader that he almost loses hope. And for that split moment, he remembers why he fights, why he must fight, and why he can't allow Vader to win. And that's to protect Luke and Leia. Yeah, I,
2: Vivian Lila Blair, uh, Blair, excuse me, amazing. She embodied a young Leia perfectly. I just, I know if Carrie Fisher was still here today, she would just, she would be thrilled. she I just, I'm sure she'd love it. She perfectly captured the spirit of Leia. And it's, it's amazing now that we've gotten to see pretty much Leia's entire life in a sense that we have her, that we've seen her young. Now we see her the way she is in the original trilogy. And of course, then in the sequels, when Carrie returned, And it's really, really special to me that we've gotten to see just all the way through Leia's life, that she really is the same, that she's fearless and a natural born leader. Even she's 10, what, 10 in the show? And even still, she's still the the smartest person in the room at 10 years old. Mm -hmm. Just the amazing. I was blown away by the portrayal.
0: Yeah. And again, you can see. How much she has in common with Padme, even though Padme is never referenced by name, which I'm slightly disappointed about. Um, But you can see all the traits that of Padme in Leia, where she is that natural born leader. That even being so young, because Padme was only fourteen in the Phantom Menace, right? So it's not. It makes perfect sense to have Leia, who is only a few years younger than Padme was in that film. still embody all of those same qualities and be that natural born leader. Um, and Obi-Wan even, even says, well, he can't even tell what type of person Wei is going to become, that she'll be one of the strongest figures in the rebellion. Even, even though she's so young now, he knows the type of person that she'll become because he's seen it, not just in her, but in her mother, when he knew her as well.
1: Sorry. I know some people that think that the very best part of this show was Child Leia, and I don't fully disagree. I mean it's obviously my favorite part was the Hayden flashbacks. That will forever be my favorite part of this show, but Child Leia was excellent. First of all, I didn't even know she was going to be in this show to begin with. I didn't mm-hmm. know that, and the fact that you got a lot of time with Luke and Leia, and remember uh, when Luke – is rescuing Leia in the original movie. Yeah. Remember notice how excited Leia gets when she when he says Ben Kenobi. Yes, it all makes sense now, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. That's why she got so excited because she's like, yes, it's him. Mm -hmm. And it's it's so good. I love that tie-in so much because they do have that relationship. And I and yes I know Padme's name isn't mentioned but I do think I do think it's fine simply because it adds... You know, Leia still doesn't fully know much about her mother than the original trilogy, so I think that's yeah. fine. Yeah, I, I don't
0: necessarily think that Padme's name should have been brought up with Leia as much as it would have been interesting to see um, Obi-Wan use her name as a way to bring Anakin out during their fight. That's more what I'm thinking of.
2: And but, do you, you guys remember in, the, in A New Hope where the original message... Where she says, you know, years ago you fought for my clo- my father in the Clone Wars. Now uh, he asks that you help him again. I'm paraphrasing, but she like right. acts she acts like she's never like she's never met the man before. But now knowing that they have a very close relationship and that she holds him very dear, it's not that it's not that she doesn't know him. She's pretending like she doesn't know him because yeah. remember at the end where he says we everything has to be kept a secret or else it would endanger both of us mm-hmm.
1: i didn't think about that that's a yeah. that's she, a great point she's
2: pretending like she like she hasn't she doesn't know him to, because that's what he asked her to do all those years ago
0: yeah and another another thing that the show presents really well um and i mentioned it a little bit earlier is the the through line of sacrifice in star wars right the the idea that Um, you die and then um, live on as your best self. Um, And you do so so that the next generation can then continue the fight. And you can see that continuously in Kenobi, while Tala doesn't die and become a Force ghost like Obi-Wan does, she still dies knowing that Leia and the rest of the rebellion and that Obi-Wan will keep up the fight even after she's gone. So you see her die, the save Obi-Wan, and then you have... Um, Obi-Wan sacrificed himself in the original Star Wars to save Luke and Leia, and then Luke pays that sacrifice off again in The Last Jedi when he sacrifices himself to save Rey and the next generation of the the resistance. So it's it's this really nice through line of, of sacrifice to preserve the future. And yeah, while I, I don't love that Tala died um, from, a, from like a, a character perspective because I feel like they could have still done a lot more and it would have been nice for, for her to get, for her to be able to live on af- like post her redemption after having atoned for what she had done in the Empire. I still really like that idea of continued um, sacrifice and how it seemingly inspired Obi-Wan to do the same in the original Star Wars retroactively.
1: Not to mention uh, Leia's blaster uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Holster. Holster, yeah, is tall yes. That wow that, that is incredible.
0: I love stuff that stuff like
1: stuff like
2: that never ceases to amaze me. Better just add it in the canon like that. That never ceases to amaze me.
0: Yeah, it's it takes a really skilled writer to be able to acknowledge what how a character will become like how they are already and be able to narratively connect the that through line of this is how they get from this point in their story to the next it's very difficult to write those in-between characters it's very easy to write what will come next but it's very hard to write what will what comes before because you have to make it feel natural that this is how this character gets to where we already know It's a much more difficult task writing a young Leia or an Obi-Wan between Revenge of the Sith and the original Star Wars than it is writing, say, like Leia or Han or Luke in the sequel trilogy. Shall we talk about Reva? Yes, let's talk about Reva. Um, Reva is interesting because I do agree that the the big issue with Reva has a lot to do with the show's pacing and the fact that there are some stuff with her that could have happened in other episodes. Um, It didn't need to necessarily be as spread out as it was. But when you finally get her story in episode five and you learn what her motivation is, and there were a lot of hints towards that being the case before, like you had that flashback with the younglings in the first episode where it very clearly had the camera focusing on one specific youngling that was always in the center of frame. That happened to look exactly like a young Reva. Um And then with that being acknowledged in episode five with her becoming an Inquisitor so that she can exact her revenge so that she can get close to Anakin and kill him out of, as, out of revenge for um, him killing so many of her friends when she was young and defenseless and couldn't do anything to protect them as a means of atonement is just so rich and it's especially great when you see the parallels between her and vader in episode six because she is becoming what she hates the the show is utilizing the idea of you can't be there is no such thing as a gray jedi there is no such thing as a character that was good that can tap into the dark side without being corrupted and this show demonstrates that by how close Reva comes to becoming exactly like Anakin and making the exact same mistake that he did.
1: I really, I really enjoyed what they did with her. And like, obviously at first I'm like, okay, who is this? Um, you know, seemed like, seemed very extra, which was fun, but I'm like, okay, like what's, what's going on here? And by the time that we figured out what was going on, it, w- it was just excellent from there. I loved. How you know Vader was kind of playing this like game with her just to humiliate? Because he knew yeah. what was going on this whole time, and yeah, he was
0: always just using her to get the Obi Wan. Yeah, um, and he never once was afraid of what she could possibly do to him because he knew he knew that he, that whatever she was planning, he'd always be able to stop it no matter how much he knew or not. And the moment. When he talks down to her after the fight is over, after because you have that brilliant moment of him only using the Force to fight her, which parallels with the flashback really well. Because when he only was using brute force and his skills with a lightsaber against Obi Wan, while Obi Wan was very clearly using his skill with the Force against Anakin, you then get the opposite with Vader using the Force to dominate Reva in that fight, um, basically winning, right, disarming her and taking her weapon from her, only to split it in half. To to seemingly say here, let's have an even fight, as if the goat her in the thinking that she stood still stood a chance against him. Only to prove that even then, even with him not using the force and relying on his skills with the saber, um, she still was no match for him.
2: I mean, Vader's always been nothing uh, but extra. Mm-hmm absolutely he was, i i love that too he was yeah he was he just kind of like pity tossed it to her and was like all right take your best shot and he was just it's just like it i'm making another rebels reference but it reminded me of the Canaan and ezra fight in the season two premiere mm-hmm. he was just he was just like he was toying with them he was toying with her the entire time
0: yes the only difference is here it wasn't constructive like when Kanan does it it's to teach Ezra a lesson the same way that Obi-Wan was trying to teach Anakin in their duel in the flashback right and but here while Vader is teaching a lesson to Reva um, it's more so about him winning and being victorious and showing that nothing could stop him rather than him teaching Reva um, that she needed to be more methodical and that she never stood a chance against him it's it's not fully meant to be a teaching moment, even though it still is for Reba. Because it's that moment that makes her realize that she never stood a chance against him and that she needed to find another way to, for the fuel her revenge. Which, of course, becomes going after Luke in the next episode.
1: I really enjoy how, at the end of episode two, she stabs the Grand Inquisitor and then she becomes the new Crane Inquisitor. Yes. Obviously, all of us who have seen Rebels are like, "What the heck?" Yes. And- we all know that something is up. There is
0: something screwy about this. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. I mean, for people who hadn't seen Rebels, they thought, "Oh, okay, that's that. You know, that's natural." But no, for us who have seen Rebels, we're like, "Wait a minute! Like something's something's up with this." And I love how it's just a mind game, uh, yes. by Vader, and it's absolutely glorious. And I love how. The Grand Quest is basically standing over her, reigning over at the end of episode five. It shows that Vader did basically destroy another opponent.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and it's it, it just shows how much of a, you know, f- except when he faces Obi-Wan, how much of an unstoppable killing machine that he is, which yeah. Disney era as Star Wars has portrayed perfectly well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
2: Perfect. I mean, just think about it. Rogue One, this, Jedi Fallen Order rebels everything and, that and the is, comics too
0: like yeah, you look at vader too. down and even the more recent stuff with um how they're kind of balancing the how anakin represents his humanity with the monster that vader is and playing off of both there there are not many characters in star wars that recognize anakin's weakness and the current vader comics are dealing with that really well with having uh save one of Padme's handmaidens, um, kind of deconstruct Vader's monster persona and point out that all the same flaws of Anakin are still there, which Obi-Wan also does in this show too. But I think my favorite thing that's done with Reba's character has to be her ending because we see often in Star Wars that villains don't usually get the to live to, to enjoy their time post their redemption, where they are no longer the villainous force and they're trying to actively do better and live their best life. We don't get to see a whole lot of that in Star Wars. Uh, Like Vader dies the moment after his redemption. So uh, Ben Solo doesn't really get to be Ben Solo after after removing himself from Kylo Ren in The Rise of Skywalker. He only gets just a few moments of joy where he has a smile on his face, and you see that ripped away from him at the end of the film. And even even with Maul in, in Rebels, even though it's still a fitting ending for Maul, for him to die at the hands of Kenobi, having never been able to let go of that need for revenge, right? It's just so refreshing to finally get of a villain like Reva that we know is a victim of circumstance and is trying to do her best with the cards that she was dealt and is still choosing to be better, to not end up exactly like Anakin, like Vader. And Obi-Wan rewards that not by killing her, but by um, taking her saber and burying it and letting her go so that she can find who she wants to be now that she is no longer an inquisitor it's fantastic and it's the sort of arc i wish more villains in star wars were able to get
2: i 100 percent agree and I, I really thought that she was i remember the first couple episodes people were complaining about like how extra she was mm-hmm. and i it seemed perfectly i mean it seemed perfectly in in character, you know, she was young. Yeah. She wanted to prove. She wanted to prove herself. She was vengeful. Yeah,
0: I really,
2: I really, really enjoyed what they did with her. And yeah, and when
0: it gets recontextualized as her acting, right, as her trying to seem more evil and menacing than she actually is,
2: and just yeah, to see that you know Vader was fifteen steps ahead of her the entire time, just
0: a masterclass. Absolutely. Yeah, no Mo- Moses Ingram's performance as Riva was fantastic. I really loved her in The Queen's Gambit too. And it's fantastic to see her get to have so much theatricality as a villain in Star Wars as well. Uh, I really hope that we get to see more of her in the future whether it's in a, a spin-off show or a comic because I really love Riva's character. And I am very right. she interested was to see in The Queen's goes.
1: Gambit. Yeah. Oh, I forgot about that. I
0: love that show.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But no, and I, I guess the only thing, the last thing I will say is I'm so glad that we got Hayden back for the show because seeing him actually be given a quality script to read from is everything I've, I've ever wanted. Um, because his, his physical performance has always been really good, and it, it was always really just the script that he was given in *Attack of the Clones* of Revenge of that and the lines that he had to read that just weren't that great. But all of his visual, his physical, like facial performance and the way that he physically carries himself, like it's very clear watching the show. Uh, it's it's clear which scenes are Hayden in the Vader suit based off of the way that he. And I love that. Like you see, like the scene of Vader's will walking towards Anakin. He has that same sort of swagger that Anakin had on Mustafar in Revenge of the Sith. And I just love that so much.
2: And it's, it's everything that I ever could have wanted that Ewan and Hayden are getting to hear all these years later how much the prequels are loved when they didn't hear that for the first 10 years after Revenge of the Sith.
0: Oh man, the cheer, the sheer amount of cheers that that rang out when Hayden said, uh, this is where the fun begins, the day that Kenobi was going to premiere on mm-hmm. uh, Disney Plus at Celebration was just fantastic. I love that. It, it nearly brought tears to my eyes. It's, I, I like, was so elated.
2: Like they didn't when the prequels came out, they didn't hear like they didn't hear from us because we were all kids at the time. The, yeah, we were all children. the prequel. The prequels were the Star Wars made for us. The 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 negativity they heard from were, for lack of a better term, the neckbeards that grew up that grew up with the original trilogy and were expecting just more of the same of that or just from the critics but I just it warmed my heart so much and it means so much to me that Ewan and Hayden and really everybody associated with the prequels now are hearing from the people that prequels are made for our generation how much they how much they're beloved how much they mean to us as a community
0: yeah absolutely and the interview where Hayden they had an interview where Hayden got interviewed by a kid. That has to be my favorite thing um, that, that has been done as promotion for the show because you can see just how happy and elated Hayden is to hear from a kid that was inspired by his performance as Anakin that loves his character. And there just isn't anything better. Or like you look at uh, the Sky Talkers interview with uh, with Hayden, where they say that he was one of their favorite parts of the prequel trilogy, and that Anakin is their favorite character in Star Wars, mostly because of his performance, and it just warms my heart so much.
1: Most agreed. Uh, just just the amount of positivity around this show was was phenomenal, and I'm I'm just very happy it was a, it was a. It was, as good as it was. Even though there are a couple things that could have been better, like obviously the visual direction and um, I, I didn't really like episode four uh, because as someone who loves and played Jedi Fallen Order, it kind of just felt like a watered down copy of it. Yeah. So that episode, that episode just felt useless to m- and boring to me. It does. But like episode
0: I'll- four has some cool stuff, like it has Obi Wan holding back the water and has the the lightsaber cutdowns in the darkness, and they're very Gimby, Tartanofsky-esque. And you have a lot of great moments with Reva and Leia. But I think the big issue is that it's kind of, it has the same sort of plot through line that episode two did, where Obi-Wan is once again having to rescue Leia. And a lot of the character moments that occur in that episode could have been better served in another in a separate episode and it doesn't feel like they're utilizing the location of the episode as well as they could be it's not necessarily bad but it's it's clear that the episode is there because of the episode count that they were given and that they needed to stretch the story out agreed But, but yeah, I, I, really the only other issue I have is the visual direction, the editing. And um, it's been pointed out um, on, on Twitter. I've had a few conversations about this with other, other podcast hosts. And all of the visual effect shots are amazing. Like the scenes where you have like that pullback of the train moving towards uh, most easily in the first episode. Are all visually amazing you all the pullback shots the the um the in space sort um ship chase that's in, at the beginning of episode six all of that stuff looks great but that's because all of it was done digitally almost all of the practical camera work um and the visuals of that and the way that that's edited between is not great and it's most noticeable as much as i love the flashback scene of Anakin Obi-Wan, it's most noticeable there, because the camera and the editing don't really know how the focus on the choreography and what the choreography just um, be what is telling the story. Um, they're editing too much, and they're taking too much focus away from the fight that's happening on screen. It's It's really strange and very awkward, and while I love that scene, I can't deny that it probably would have been better if they had just pulled the camera back and allowed us to just watch their fight without, without there being um, a whole lot of shot reverse shot editing during it. I think that works fine for like the, the dialogue scenes but where you just have them striking each other and you are editing between the hits, it looks really awkward.
1: Yeah, I I will agree, and yeah, the the camera work was very inconsistent. Like mm-hmm. with the fight in episode three, it was incredibly zoomed out, and it was zoomed very close in. Yeah. I would have just like it. it was more like just stay have a, just have a medium tight shot. Yeah, or, or, or even the medium shot, kind of or even
0: episode six, you have that shot where Obi Wan has all those boulders floating above him, as if it's supposed to be some kind of like grand hero moment. But because of the way it's framed, all of the boulders are really out of focus because it's very um, clear that the, sh- that the scene was edited around the visual effects rather than the visual effects being overlaid on top of it. Um, it seems like they're focusing just a little too much on having the physicality of Obi-Wan without showing the grandness of the feet that he's pulling off. Like, you compare that scene to Rey holding up the boulders in The Rise of Skywalker, or not The Rise of Skywalker, in The Last Jedi. Um, like You compare those two scenes, which are listening very similar imagery, but one of them is clearly um, framed better. No, not, that's not the word I'm looking for, but it's um, the way that all of the objects in frame are put together make it feel more imposing and triumphant than the scene with Obi-Wan and Kenobi. Even though they're both eliciting the same sort of message your meaning.
1: Agreed. Yeah, it's someone who worked on a, uh, who worked on a tele- who worked for a television crew for years in college. I definitely, I definitely is definitely more noticeable when I see shots are not filmed correctly. Because mm-hmm. sports kind of has some of the same concepts, like uh, have this in focus, have a shallow depth of field here. Um, ha- have a medium-tight shot here, wide shot here, and yeah, it was very yeah. all over the place. Like, the camera
0: was angled correctly, but it was too far in. Like, if, it, if the camera was pulled out just a little bit more, so you could see more of the area above Obi-Wan's head, so you could see more of the boulders that he's, that he's um, holding with the force, um, and then have the boulders be maybe colorized differently or not be so... Um, grayed out it probably would be a way more elegant looking shot right but yeah. again that's really it the writing for the show is so tight that it really is just the visuals that they're holding it down and I think a lot of that comes down to the time and budget that they were given I feel like if they had as much as I love that it's a show and that we can watch it on Disney plus I feel like this sort of event, having Hayden and Ewan back as Anakin and Obi and telling this type of, of grand story, is better suited for a theatrical film or a series of films than a TV series. And that's really the only complaint I have for the show. I see where you're. I see where you're coming from. I just
2: a movie you have to wrap things up in two and a half hours. I just loved all the time we got to, that we got to spend six hours with these characters instead right. of just like a two and a half hour feature film. That's why I'm perfect. I was on- I was honestly almost more excited that it was going to be a series in a movie, but I would be really interested to see how they would have done it. If it was one movie or if it was a tri- or if it was a trilogy.
0: Yeah. I think based off of interviews I've been seeing, it was originally intended to be a trilogy. The first season was going to be the full full trilogy with probably the first movie ending with the duel that we see in episode three, right? So if that is the case, then it probably would have still felt natural. We just would have had to wait more in between the endings for each movie because the production would have taken a lot longer because more budget, more time. And I think that that's really the only thing that hurt the show was it just needed more budget and more time and i don't think disney was willing to give a show the um what i don't think they were willing to give the show the budget it really needed and i think the only way that that would have happened is if they were movies but but no and that's especially again and the lacking visuals are especially evident with having seen the most recent season of Stranger Things. Because while I'm sure we have issues with Stranger Things 4, uh, easily one of the best elements of the show has always been its visual direction, and the direction of this season of Stranger Things was spectacular. All of the visuals were amazing, and the ending especially was really dang good. Um, And part of why the season felt more horror- film-esque than the two seasons before
1: it yeah so now now we're talking about stranger things so essentially what i really loved about stranger things 4 is first of all like it looked a thousand times better in my opinion in the first three seasons i'll be completely honest after watching Stranger things 4 i don't know i don't even know if i could go back and watch the first three seasons because of how much better uh season stranger things 4 looks <laughs> yeah, they clearly totally put
0: a lot of budget behind this one.
1: And not to mention I do prefer the characters being at the age they are now. I yeah. I think there's a there's a lot they can do with that and obviously I know you guys are going to gush for 20 full minutes about Robin, so obviously I'll let let you guys do that, but there was just like I feel like almost every character show is at the correct age where you can tell the best story that it possibly can be. Obviously, I have two very big issues with Stranger Things four, mainly just the finale. Mm-hmm. But I thought that volume one was perfection,
0: in my opinion.
1: I think it was, and... I think it was
0: mostly good. I, I agree that um volume one was mostly good. I I don't think that it's the finale that had issues, and this is kind of. Um, my running thing with a lot of shows I watched it was the same issue I had with, um, with WandaVision and Falcon and Winter Soldier and a few of these other like grand long scale stories that have multiple plot threads. There's usually one storyline that is very, is significantly weaker than the others and doesn't connect as well as it should that then brings down the story, especially in the finale, because that's when it's most noticeable because you're having this big climax where everything is supposed to uh, combine in this and, collute and um, conclude in a satisfying manner. And when you have this weak storyline, it's been weak since the moment it began, that feels even more noticeable when it ends. So I think, Sean, if you were to rewatch the show, I don't think you would, you would view that first volume as perfect as you think as you do now. Well that's because I don't really agree with Russia
1: being weak though. I I thought in some way I thought it was better than the California storyline in my opinion.
2: Yeah I would oh I'd agree with that too. Mm. The California storyline was my least favorite.
1: Yeah, completely. I Well what was great what was great about Russia was first of all, um Hopper and his companion like in this situation i thought was very interesting i mean it's
0: entertaining uh, like I, it, the russia stuff is entertaining why like, i'm not going to say it isn't and it's acted really well and it visibly and it like the visuals are good my problem with the russia stuff is it doesn't connect well enough with the rest of the show and it's and it's the biggest reason why each episode is over an hour long because there aren't as many through lines and all the characters in it feel very disconnected from everything else going on in the story. In a vacuum, if it was its own season, the Russia stuff would be great. But the way it's interconnected with everything else going on in the show, um, and the fact that it, the way that they seem to combine it with the other two storylines is extraordinarily lazy.
2: I'm just, so I'm thinking back, so Sean, you said that this is like your favorite, like your favorite age the kids are at now, which they're not, none of them are kids anymore. But uh, what I really like is that Stranger Things is, it's like, it's grown up with its cast is the more, the more we've come along, the more kind of adult it's become. Granted, we're season one was still very violent. I mean, Millie Bobby Brown was what, 11 in season one? and literally the the Hawkins lab lady that killed the killed Benny the burger guy she literally pop, like popped her head open so but i feel like so it was still very violent then but i like how the it's the show has grown up as the cast has and really i thought the season was the most outstanding yet so i didn't i hopped on the stranger things train very late i didn't start watching it until probably a month or two before season three came out. So I watched the first two seasons and then watched season three when it came out, Mm -hmm. gosh, 2019 now. Yeah. And that, and I was, I, you know, I've been anticipating this for years and years now and I just, I love what they, I love just, yeah, the grand scale of it all. I really, I loved it. Every second of it, I was really riveted. It was by far the scariest season by far. Yeah, it was the goriest season by far. It was, uh, it was the Russia storyline last year with Robin and Steve and Dustin. Yeah, and uh, what was Erica? I didn't like there much. As, as much as I love those characters, I didn't. That wasn't my favorite storyline last year. But yeah, the Russia agreed. stuff with Hop, with Hopper and Joyce, and Murray, I. Yeah, it's it was my, my favorite. It was my, not my favorite, but it was, I like that better than the California one.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I think the issue with the California storyline is the characters that are involved with it. I think that Will was given a lot of good stuff because they're really touching on how important the friend group and his distance from them has been and the fact that he's being affected the same way that Eleven is, but Mike isn't showing as much love for him as he is for Eleven. Um, which is a very normal occurrence. You usually, um, you usually become disconnected with your friends when you start a new relationship. And Will being so connected with Mike, as especially in second season, Nate heavily elude that the Will potentially being gay in this season too, without um, outright saying it. And I really appreciate what's done with Will's character, but I feel like the rest of my like Jonathan storyline feels kind of stagnated with how it was in the previous season, in season three. And Mike doesn't really get a whole lot of development on his own either. It kind of seems like the same sort of arc that he had in season three as well. And because of that, a lot of the California stuff feels a little stagnant. And the Eleven stuff really doesn't get good until we learn the identity of the show's main villain and everything starts to piece itself together. Um, that, which that is a that really good mystery. And it also is probably the biggest reason why this season feels scarier, is that unlike in seasons two and three, where the main sort of antagonistic force didn't have a face, right? And season one, the main antagonist was um, the doctor that was in charge of the program in Hawkins, who is brought back in this season to help um restore a weapon's powers. He's very clearly the main villain of the first season. Like we have a character with a face that is clearly evil and malevolent. And we didn't really have that in seasons two and three. We kind of just had um faceless monsters only. Like the demogorgon was good because it was a physical representation of the evil of Hawkins lab. Right? It was it was a physical monster for them to fight and take down without, while also still having um, the real villains be the humans that caused the portal to open in the first place. While the seasons two and three only really had those physical threats. They seemingly saw the Demogorgon and how much people liked the design and its presence in the show and tried to replicate without understanding why it worked. And this season finally introduced a villain that was three-dimensional, that had character and motivations and drive and a reason for doing what they're what they're doing. Um, he like Vecna feels human because he is. Like ultimately it's revealed that he was um, number one. He was a person with extraordinary telepathic abilities that um, scientists abused and tried to recreate. Right? I- I thought that whole, that
2: whole reveal was outstanding. And it just connected like we were finally getting answers to really where. Yeah. It, the, it where felt these like powers, everything
0: finally connected.
2: Yeah. Right? Where these powers came from, where the, like where this gate to the upside down was opened, to in the first place. It just yeah. all, it was all coming together. I thought it yeah. was And phenomenal.
0: it connects the California storyline, what's happening with 11 to what's going on in Hawkins, which allows us to care more about what's going on in California because now we have a direct connection between the two of them. But easily the best part of this show was the Hawkins stuff. I think that if the stuff with, if they hadn't taken 11 and will and moved them to California at the end of season three, and if they kept Hopper dead, I think this show probably would have been perfect because then everything would have been in a central location. And we wouldn't have to be jumping around between characters and locations so much, and everything would feel a little more connected than it does at the end of the day.
1: And one thing I'll add to it, uh so you mentioned how like Hawk and uh everything in Hawk is by far the best and yes it, it, it is. goes it goes it goes to show. I mean, and let's be let's be honest here. The real reason for that, and that is Steve. Steve I mean, it's partially
0: it. Steve. I wouldn't say it's only Steve. I mean, um, of oh, my, oh, my
2: favorite characters it. are in Hawkins. Yeah, not, I think it has as much as, to as do I do. With.
0: It. I think it has more to do with the fact that Haw- Hawkins is the heart of the show, and it's the location that we've had since the first season. We've grown attached to it over the course of these seasons, and Steve feels like what Hawkins should be as in it's a town of people stuck in their ways that need to grow and become more open-minded and be aware that um, there's so much more going on in the world than just their average ordinary lives, and that's sort of the arc that Steve has had and most of the most of the older members of the cast have had because Robin had the same thing in season three and so did Nancy in season one Um, but Steve is the best representation of it because of how much he grew from where he started to where he is now four season four seasons later. He's by far experienced the most amount of growth in the show. And he ha- he's learning to be open-minded towards so many people that he probably would have never interacted with in season one.
2: The, the coming out scene with Robin and Steve in season three is still my favorite probably one if not my favorite scene in the show Mm -hmm. just it shows it shows steve's growth that in season one he would have not have it would have been a much different conversation that right when steve says why are you uh what's the what oh gosh what's the 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 girl that had a crush on originally sang the national anthem i don't remember her name but uh he immediately accept, like he was pouring his heart out to Robin and then Robin comes out and then she, and then he immediately accepts that. And then instead of, tr- instead of being uh, super, you know, pissy about it, he, hmm.
0: uh, he,
2: he just immediately, he just immediately yeah, yeah, he just immediately he,
0: starts he's, joking he's about compassionate with her and yeah. he doesn't breathe her any differently. Yeah, he, he just immediately starts, yeah. starts
2: joking about. Robin's poor choice in crushes. So I just, I love their, I love the, the duo of them. And then now Robin and Nancy, fantastic. I love yes. it. I love it so much. I Just, yeah, a masterclass in character development for one, Joe Curie
0: and Steve Harrington. Yeah. And of course, the, the newest addition to uh, the older members of the cast this season was Eddie. And Eddie, unlike... Everyone else, I, I think that Eddie embodies what, I, what they probably originally intended Jonathan to be, which was the audience surrogate for the older audience. But because of Jonathan's uh, ill, not, not exactly great behavior in the first season, um, that kind of alienated a lot of the audience. Um, I guess it has made it hard for, for some of us to, to kind of grow the, like where Jonathan's character is headed since. So they seem to go with a very different angle with Eddie. And Eddie is very clearly designed to be the audience surrogate for this season. Uh, Like with a lot of the previous season, kind of like with how Robin is treated in season three, Um, he's meant to be the new character that's experiencing all of the horror for the first time. And and he's very clearly afraid and scared and frightened by all of it. Uh, His whole character arc is symbolized by... That D and D scene in the in the first episode of this season, where he's the dungeon master, and he's telling the rest of the group that they need to run away, that they're not going to win against and defeat Vecna, the fictional Vecna, not the one in the show, right, the D and D one, that they need to run away because there's no uh, chance uh, chance of victory for them, and that whole scene symbolizes the arc that Eddie goes through in this season where. He goes from running away um, from the death of his friend at the end of the first episode to uh, choosing to stand his ground and fight back alongside Dustin at the end of the season.
2: Also, the Duffer brothers, they made mention that they wish they didn't kill Chrissy off because then they saw how much chemistry the two of them had.
0: I wish so. that they hadn't killed Chrissy off either. I know, because I just... <laughs> she's great. And I the I time that we he saw her, what yeah. Would have been done with her and, and Eddie. I really wish that neither of them died. That's I my agree. thing. That, that's probably my biggest problem with the season, is the, the, is the choice to kill Eddie off. Because, again, he's the audience surrogate character. He's the one that uh, clearly is most like uh, the older audience watching the show. He has, he's a huge nerd. Um, he's villainized for the things that he's interested in. Um, he's a complete, a, a sorrowly misunderstood person uh, that might have a lot of flaws but is constantly trying to be better and that's the type of character that resonates with so many members of the audience. And it he falls under the same issue that The Rise of Skywalker had with killing off Ben Solo where it's this character that has had a lot of trouble in his life and is trying to do better, but is constantly afraid that he can't, right? He's afraid that, that he'll never be able to be better, even though he wants to be. So when he finally does start to become better, when he becomes stronger, when he um, starts to become fearless um, and more courageous and more heroic um, by the end of the season, um, they kill him off. I know why they did it. They... The decision to kill off Eddie because he's more of an audience surrogate is that it's sort of the message that you too, you audience member, can also make the ultimate sacrifice. That you too can be heroic and die for those you care about, which isn't a bad message, but a better message would have been that you can be better, you can fight and be strong and not run away and get to live and get to carry that strength and use it to improve those around you. And I feel like that would have been a way stronger message than the one that we actually got. My my big issue and it's a little bit it's a little bit
1: different is Vecna is built up as this very mighty villain and he is and <laughs> the scene in the whole like ending of volume one where we see him kill all the other children at the lab is mm-hmm. some of the best stranger things content we've gotten and he's portrayed par- very powerfully mm-hmm. and with everything that's going on everyone's like oh i don't know if we're gonna make it writings on the wall that like we might actually die here instead it's, it gets instead it gets really cheesy it's, uh, it's very it's
0: strange that they don't kill any of the members of the cast that have been around for a long time. It's, it's strange that we once again have Vecna be defeated by Eleven, just trying harder, just like all of the other main villains that we've had since the first season. It, it's, it's, it's the it same sort very... of scene that we've gotten before. And it's not a bad idea, it's just that we've seen it already. It, it's an, it was just annoying because I'm
1: like... If, if 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 this is like by far worse than anything we've seen, there needs to be consequences, and you know, and I felt that, and, and like consequences
0: Max... for characters that have already experienced the full arc, Yes. That have had their full circle of development. I feel like Eddie died right as his his hero's journey hit its climax, not its conclusion, and it yes,
2: like instead that. The... It seemed like the writing was on the, I'm sorry, Sean. It seemed like the writing was on the wall for Steve, if I'm being honest, when he was talking yeah. about the the, van, the motorhome and six kids streamed to Nancy and then he confessed that like he always loved her and that just him fully embracing his, uh, his role as a mom of six
0: kids. Yeah. Uh, I don't currently, know what currently more they could do with Steve. The they must, thing. they really, they must, really like, must have a good like plan for him in, volume five because if they don't i'm going to be upset yeah because it kind of feels similar to what was done with hopper this season because hopper didn't really experience any new development that he didn't have in the third season either and most of the development that he had in russia was off screen like we see him talk about his experiences and the changes that have happened but we don't get to see that gradual change over time because of where we pick up with him and I'm very worried that Steve's going to be written somewhere without Hopper was in this season. In the next one,
1: considering that in my opinion he's the best character in the show, they bet season five better not be lackluster for him because uh, the way Steve, I mean, Steve is o- honestly one of the most iconic characters of this generation. Like Absolutely. he. And you can't do anything to myself. He would have died. That would have been as much as it would have made me very angry because I love Steve to death. I would have been okay it with it. Yeah. I would have too.
2: I was. And, I was ready for it. I was very ready for it. I didn't want it to yeah. happen, but I'm I was very surprised ready for, it.
0: for it. It just it feels like if you're going to kill off any character, it probably should have been Steve. It, the the issue with. It couldn't be Robin because she still has so much more development to happen. And I feel like they're leaning more towards giving her a happy ending compared to other characters based off of the writing for her story. And you can't kill off Nancy because she needs to make up with Jonathan. And unfortunately, they're not in the same location. If they were together, well, if they together, if Jonathan was in Hawkins, then maybe it would have been fine to kill one of them off. But because of where they are geographically, in this season, it would, it would feel like their story hadn't wrapped up naturally. So really, if they're going to kill off any character, they should kill Steve. They should have, because every other character just didn't feel right. And again, you can tell this by the decision of the kill off Eddie, because that didn't feel right.
1: The problem with killing Eddie, like, I, I would have preferred, like, Max to be fully dead instead of Eddie because literally this is the fourth season in a row where you introduce a well, a liked character in a season, and then they die in the same season. It's the same yeah, thing. it is the same
0: thing. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. Like, the, the, the thing about Max being dead is I think it was the only other character that would have fully worked because – Max has been suffering and suffering and suffering. Yeah, and... But, that's
0: why, but that's why Max being dead doesn't work is the suffering. Because if she does die, that means that she died only getting to experience the suffering and not ever getting to be happy, to enjoy well, well, Some of
1: her last, the, the thing is though, some of yeah, her but last Yeah, But just because it's in moments. her,
0: but making her happy in her last moments makes it worse, not better.
1: For Max, I don't agree because she can finally be she can finally be free and 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 rest with without without all the guilt. I but think. But that's it the worked.
0: problem. The problem is that you think that that in order for characters to rest and be at peace, they have to die. They don't, that's not yeah. the case, Sean. Yeah,
2: no, that's, I'm with is, I'm with Winthrop. I'm with
0: yeah, here. That that's a key proponent of um the American monomyth is that in order for the community to be at peace and it has to be rid of violence and the only way to do that is for all those involved with the violence to die the only weave those that weren't violent to begin
2: with no it broke my like seeing that scene absolutely broke my heart and who knows now what they're going to do with her with the state she's in but i i just i max is one of my I mean, my Zoom name right now says Robin Buckley Lover. Max mm-hmm. is one of my other, is one of probably my two or three other favorite characters in the show. And uh, it's kind of like what Wintrop said. It just, it wouldn't, I would, I would get why they did it if they killed her off, but it would hurt in the sense that, yeah, she didn't, she hasn't gotten, yeah, she hasn't really gotten to like accept the things that have happened have gotten to process them because her entire, because yeah. her entire life has really just been her mom being, it's not really like, they don't really go super into it, but it's kind of implied that her mom's kind of absent and questionable. Her stepdad, who's a deadbeat, we don't know anything about her real dad. Maybe they go, maybe they do in the book that was about her. I haven't read that, so I don't know would like to read that someday and then having to go through billy treating her horribly and then her losing billy and her feeling enormous guilt about it and now th- and now this whole thing with that just killing her when there was when yeah. it was just the hits keep coming and they didn't stop coming and just
0: yeah the writers i think understood that we ending max's story here would not be a smart decision i wish that they had the step with eddie too but I think that they they, care, they showed more up for Max because she's been more of a mainstay in the show since the second season. And because of that, um, they were more willing to keep her around. So, so I think the she- issue is that they don't yet know what to do with her going into the next season. Because I think that's the reason why she's comatose at the end of the season is a lot of writers, when they know that it would be wrong to kill off a character because of where within their story but don't know where to take their story next um when you know like they're not just the story isn't done yet like if this was the final season and max ended it at this point and then like they have an epilogue where she wakes up and then there's like no more conflict after that that would be fine the issue is that because there's more conflict that's yet to come They need to figure out an organic way to bring Max back into the story. I think her being comatose shows that they don't yet understand how to do that. They don't know how they want to use her in the final season yet. I mean,
1: I I get that you guys are right about, oh, she shouldn't be dead after everything. But the problem is now it's – but now it's arguably going to be even worse because because now not only is she comatose but also – For now. She's – she's right now she's blind
0: and most likely paralyzed yeah it's gonna it's gonna be even more and i'm yeah but she got paralyzed due the supernatural magic stuff so I'm, fi- I'm sure they could find uh a cure-all for that if they so wanted to considering the how fantastical the story of Stranger things is there's, yeah there's gotta be like it's gotta be something i mean you you gotta look at it and like we taught when we talked about this on the over the phone um last week when we first watched the finale, I talked about, it's a very similar situation to what's done with Rem and and ReZero, where this is a character that was comatose for supernatural, due to a supernatural reason, because the writer originally wanted to kill her off, but realized where that would end her story and that he should just keep her comatose until he figures a way to reintroduce her into the story in a way that would be meaningful for both that character and and the rest of the characters around her. And I feel like that is the same thing that's being done with Max right now. Um, so we really just have to wait and see what's done with her in the next volume. Um, but I think I definitely think killing her off was the wrong decision, but we'll see whether having her be comatose was a wrong decision, depending on what is done with her in the final season. Again, it's a very similar situation to the, uh, as the decision to keep Steve alive, or the decision not to kill Hopper off, off in season three. Season five better be incredible. Yeah, I, I there there's things I want to happen, but it's really just like places I want characters to end off at. Like Robin needs to have a happy ending, please. That um, that scene, so to the, the
2: final scene with Vicky. One yeah. of the biggest W's of the year made me I cry. Might, yeah. Love I want to so see much.
0: all the boys together at least one last time. Like I want Mike and Will and Lucas um, and um, and Dustin together again, at least one more time at the end of the season with all of them alive. I want that. Um, I, want, I want Eleven to no longer have her powers. I want the final season to end with her just permanently no longer having so that she no longer ha- has any doubt of, of her being a monster or human, right? Because I'm, I'm starting to be tired of them using that storyline every season. I think that would be a good way to finally end her character. I was really hoping that they were going to do that after season three, but now she has them back. That has to be where the final season ends for me. Um, I want, I really, like... I, I know they're going to kill off characters, but if they kill off anyone, it needs to be Hopper and Steve. Yeesh. Joyce has been through so much,
1: though. So. Yeah. Yeah. But, but no, I, that's an L, L take about Hopper. Hopper needs to live. But I'm where sorry. else
0: can they do with his character? They've run out of things um, to do with
1: him. Be married to Joyce, finally?
2: And just get to live happily ever after as a dad of three kids? I see, mean, see I guess that could date. be
0: fine, but it really depends on the way that they execute it, and I just don't see the writers of Stranger Things doing that.
2: I want, And I want Steve to finally get his nice girlfriend that loves him for who he is and to go be a dad of 12 kids now.
1: I just That's want to see of. Hopper and Joyce go on a date, like, with, with, with nothing to worry about. But yeah, we, what, we'll probably
0: get that in, like, the first episode of next season. What
2: if they... Vecna's been connected to Will through this whole thing. What if to kill Vecna that means it and that means that also kills Will because Will's still part of the Hive Mind. I like I feel like next season I just have I a mean, hunch. Maybe
0: I have a hunch Will, that Will Will wasn't connected to the Hive Mind when he wasn't in Hawkins. That connection only happened while he was in Hawkins. When I have he was a... in California, it seemed like he was perfectly fine.
2: Yeah, I just have a hunch that. I hope that's Maybe. not the case.
0: I hope so, too, because once because again... I feel no. like because he didn't have any visions like that while he was in California, I feel like it would be a little cheap of a writing move and wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. Well,
2: just because if a... that's
0: the case, if he's only connected to the hive mind in Hawkins like we've seen, I feel like you just have to take him out of Hawkins again. Or destroy Whoa. the upside down, which I think will be the... I think closing off all of the gates to the upside down and killing that will be the things that will... Once again, we solved getting those visions.
2: Okay. Once again, so. Joyce has been through way too much, so yeah. I just don't. I don't want to see that happen. And I want to see Will happy too. And I'd like to see him actually get a, like a, this thing like, they're heavily implying Will's sexuality, but they refuse to do anything about it. Yeah. I mean, it's, we'll
0: see what gets done with it in the next season, right? Yeah. I think that I think that the reason why they didn't do a whole lot with it is it's just introduced way too late in the show. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think that they really anticipated um, having Will be gay in the first couple seasons. I think that was a decision where they they realized his chemistry of Mike in their early seasons. They saw how good their, their bond was in the second season. And they were trying to figure out what arc can they give Will in season four to make him feel more important to the story of the show than he was in season three. And that attachment to Mike is the way they did which feels natural because of the relationship that we've had established before in the show. So it's, it's lucky that it ended up being as good as it did considering. But we'll have to see what they do with Will in the next season. It's, it's really just places. I don't know what they're going to do in the next season, but there's places that certain characters need to end their stories at for it to feel satisfying. And based off of what they did with Eddie, I don't have a whole lot of faith.
1: Just don't introduce a, a likable character in season five and then have and have them die. Like, please don't do this for all five seasons. That would be boring. That's all I gotta say. Who was I mean, it wasn't
0: in season three? Because I'm forgetting for some reason.
1: Season three was Alexei the Russian. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm still on the Justice for Barb train. justice
2: for bob oh yeah justice for barb and justice for bob but then and again we,
0: for
1: Eddie.
2: but then again if we don't if bob doesn't die then joyce doesn't get with hopper yeah that is also true so i guess we can i can live with that one as much as i love freaking sean astin and stranger things he was fantastic but yeah i'm still hung up on barb rest in peace if I was a yeah. character in Stranger Things, well, honestly, I'd yeah, probably the, thing be Barb. With,
0: the thing with Barb is that her character, as much as the audience loves her, her character was there just to show how great the stakes were and that anyone could die. That was that was really the whole point of Barb's character, because she was meant to be as ordinary and normal as possible, which made her very relatable to the audience. But exactly, again, it's the issue of it. The issue with Barb's writing is that the, the storyline, like with Nancy, with her, like trying to get over Barb's death in the second season is only there because of how much the fans liked Barb in the first season. It doesn't... That is true. Yeah. It's one of those things in the, in the show that just didn't really feel as natural because it, it definitely felt like they were just listening and pandering to the fans with that story decision
2: yeah i could could see that i mean even they i feel like i'm sure the Duffers have said at some point that they were surprised at like how big she was as a character i thought i maybe i'm making something up but i thought i read no i'm I'm pretty sure that
0: that that they said that in an interview before But, but yeah, and again, at the end of the day, the biggest reason why I wanted to discuss Kenobi and Stranger Things 4 at the same time is Stranger Things can learn a thing or two from Kenobi's writing because Eddie should have received the same sort of compassion from the writers that Reba did in Kenobi. Because they're not all that different character-wise. And Again, killing a character off before they, so that they don't get to live in their redemption. So they don't get to take what they've learned and bring it back to their community. Like a lot of people are, are positioning like Eddie would have to uh, live on the run for the rest of his life. And I'm like, this is a fantasy story that isn't bound by real life rules. You could literally write it in a way that makes him come off as a hero to the rest of Hawkins at the end of the season, and I wouldn't bat an eye, because this is fiction and fantasy. Um, Like, I I think the idea that people want fictional characters to adhere to real world laws and consequences is very boring. Because it it takes away so much of the freedom you have when you're telling a story, when you're writing fiction or myth, um, which, Stranger Things is, like, like most uh, modern fantasy, is modern myth. It falls a lot of the same um, strokes of the American monomyth. And that is most of the problems that me and Michael have with it, is it falls the American monomyth just a little too much. Because uh, the American monomyth, I talked about this with Sean, but uh, for Michael, the American monomyth is the same as the hero's journey, except it cuts out the returning of the elixir part, where the hero takes what they gathered from their quest, which could be knowledge, it could be something physical. Uh, like in Temple of Doom, where Indy returns um, the, the rock, um, mit, uh, the important rock to the village, that's the returning of the elixir, where he was like taking the thing that he got from his journey and, and giving it back to the community. That's the idea for... Stranger things it would be more um more metaphysical, right? It would be the lessons that Eddie has learned in his quest. He would be then bring back to his community, whether it be the friends in the Hellfire Club or, um, or his uncle or someone else. But would, it's the returning of the elixir where he brings back what he gained on his journey to the world at large or getting to live in his redemption and have that conclusion where he gets to have his life after the journey. Um, you see this uh, done really well in the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, where you have the characters be truly really affected by their journey and taking the lessons that they learned with them back to the Shire. So it's that sort of idea.
1: Also shout out to the Metallica scene. Yeah,
0: yeah. that was, that's, that was rad. That's, Again, that's like, the biggest issue I have with going off Eddie is because he gets so many great moments. Like that Metallica. was that was rad. That was unbelievably rad. Yeah, which is visibly like that the visually, it's it's amazing, and it might be one of my favorite scenes in the in the whole show.
2: And it's cool. And it's cool to see Metallica. Like they're so they think it's so cool too. Like they post it on social
0: media about yeah, they posted cool the is. video of it on Facebook and. I don't know and where else. Like
2: I saw a TikTok. I'm not on TikTok, but I saw it somewhere else. I gotcha. Uh, about some uh, some person commented on their TikTok, and he's like, he's like Metallica. I'm so I'm sorry about all the fake Stranger Things fans. And the guy and <laughs> the guy and whoever's running the account, whether it's yeah them or somebody else, they're like everybody's welcome in the Metallica family, brother. Yeah, like,
0: and it's I just think gatekeep- the choice. I hate
2: gatekeeping. I hate. Think,
0: gatekeeping yeah, and think so about much. the way that the song that they chose for that too, because it was Master of Puppets, which is perfect because Vecna is a hive mind. He controls all of um, all the Demogorgons and the bats, etc., cetera, um, through a hive mind. So he's he's the master of the puppets. So it's a perfect song choice because it actually holds meaning for the show. It doesn't just sound cool but it has like this great myth, mythological or thematic meaning for the show at large. And then also his meaning for Eddie's character because this is his big show of power. Like that's the other reason I don't love him like running off and, and gathering all the bats and fighting them by himself is because the Metallica moment elicits the exact same meaning because it's him uh, standing up and fighting and being brave in his own way. Not. Whereas the way that he seemingly sacrifices himself, we could see Steve doing the exact same thing and it would feel completely in character for him. While for a character like Eddie, Eddie is the only one that that would be in that Metallica scene and make it work. It feels uniquely him, but the scene where he chooses to sacrifice himself by getting on the bike and getting all the bats away and then fighting them alone, it doesn't really feel like something that only Eddie would do. Yeah, I would, I would be inclined to agree. But, but yeah, that's, that's basically where I'm at with it, is that the show just we, just went a little too hard on the, the American Monomyth. And there are other characters that could have been given the same moment and it would have felt more satisfying. Again, you give, give that moment to Steve and I feel like I would have been okay with it. I might not have been fully happy, but I think I would have been more okay with that than it being Eddie. But any any final thoughts before we wrap up the podcast, guys?
1: Stranger Stranger Things Season 5 better be great, but it's going to be one of the most anticipated TV events we have seen ever. And I think I, – I, I am very optimistic that it's going to be very fun, but it's been fun uh, watching – these two historic events over the last couple of weeks with Kenobi and Stranger Things and obviously excited for what's next. Obviously my next project to watch is The Boys Season 3. I'm very excited to
0: see that. Yeah, no, The Boys Season 3 is fantastic and we'll hopefully be covering it once uh, Sean has seen all, the whole season. Uh, the finale comes out, actually I think the finale came out today, so at the day that we were recording this July seventh. So I'm I can not wait to watch it. I'll probably watch it tonight after my parents are asleep. I'm really the weekend.
2: Yeah, I'm really uh yeah. I couldn't be more excited for season five. I, I'm optimistic that the Duffs are gonna be able to stick the landing. I really think they will.
0: Yeah. that we'll
2: uh, a wait and see. A
0: lot it's A lot of their story decisions are kind of questionable to me, but I I think that they could still be satisfying depending on what they go with.
2: Yeah, Uh, so uh, very excited for that. Uh, I love Stranger Things. It's very near and dear to my heart. Uh, And uh, excited for that. I don't need to say any more about how much Kenobi means to me. That's been a very, very big joy. And uh, I need to actually, my Sean and I's, i's mutual friend my roommate brendan he he's telling me i need to watch the boys too which is not it's not my usual as for anyone that knows me it's not my usual superhero uh affair but uh it's on the list i'll watch that at some point it's one
0: of the best superhero shows ever made uh the writing is fantastic it's like it's a satire um, uh, like it's a real world and superhero storyline satire but it still treats all of its characters really well and the writing is so satisfying and the narrative is so good um and the performances are just fantastic um especially this season I know Sean hasn't seen season 3 yet but Jensen Ackles is probably a career best performance as Soldier Boy in season 3 and he is so unbelievably good as in supernatural jensen yeah as in Ackles. supernatural jensen apples yeah mm-hmm. he he plays the not captain america yeah but but no that'll all right do it for this week on the podcast uh shamla you have coming up
1: well now that i'm uh now that I'm back from my vacation, i um, looking forward to uh, resuming NASCAR coverage on the King of Clark, along with Brian, a couple other articles, and I uh, should have some video game content on the horizon. I'm going to talk about the the new age of Mario sports games uh, in the future, because I've been playing all three of them as of late, and I'll, I'll also... Uh, I either do a discussion on Autonoma, uh on uh, for the next Nerd explosion podcast or write something about it. We'll see, because uh, I did beat that recently, and yeah. Um, so so looking forward to that and uh, entering the job markets, and so let's see how that goes. Awesome. Well, Michael,
2: where can people find you at? Well, they can find me primarily on Twitter, uh, Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, Manny, M-A-N-N-Y, 9-8. Uh, I am the uh, the co-play-by-play voice of Flagstaff Star Chasers in my, uh, in my day job right now, so uh, a summer collegiate baseball team up here in the Flagstaff area, just uh, in the middle of its first season, so people can that hear our broadcast once we're live again got a three game series this week coming up against the Bay Area Force and then also uh, kind of once the school year resumes you can hear me you can see me on your TVs on uh, NAZ today which is the n- local newscast up here northern Arizona's only local newscast I like to add'm uh, I'm, I'm a KJX sports uh, assistant sports director so you can hear me on football you, I'll uh, coverage, basketball, wherever sports are. You, you can, up here in the Northern Arizona region, uh, you can uh, find me, hopefully. And also NASCAR coverage on the Camden Clark, wherever, uh, whenever I'm available for that as well. And uh, so, but it's always fun to get to come on here and talk about uh, nerdy stuff because I don't get to do
0: that enough. Yeah, absolutely. It was awesome to have you once again. Yes, the next time that we cover anything Star Wars, we'll be sure to bring you back probably for andor right yeah that's coming up in august um we also have miss marvel which uh it just hits hit fifth episode has one episode left uh next week so if you're watching that you're welcome to come back and talk about miss marvel too
2: i need to i haven't yet i haven't started that i haven't watched moon night either i'm way behind
0: but but no that'll of course do it for this week's episode of Nerd explosion thank you all for listening and have a great rest of your day